Thank you, guys. Uh, so, last night, we, uh, with election, we just stayed in Romans 8 and 9 the whole time. Uh, but today, in, with sanctification, we're going to be all over the place. So I'm going to give you more of a biblical theology, or uh, mainly in the New Testament. But just so, if you can't keep up, we're going to do a lot of flipping. That's okay. That's why you've got verses up here. Um, but uh, we'll jump in with the doctrine of sanctification. So if you're a Christian, this is what you need to know. If you're in Christ... These three things are true. You have been saved, past tense. You are being saved, present tense. You will be saved, future tense. And that's the glorification that Scott will finish us up with here in a little bit. I know growing up in a a kind of a traditional uh, Southern Baptist church in Western Kentucky, that the only aspect of salvation I, I really understood was I had been saved. And, and that was always going back to a particular moment in time, normally at a vacation Bible school or at a revival meeting or some, at one point we had walked the aisle, prayed the sinner's prayer, believed in Jesus. And so someone would say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I got saved back in 1989 or, or whatever it was. And so and that, that was true. I mean, we believe in Jesus. We're justified before God through faith in Christ. So there's a real sense in which we've been saved. That's, so election right? Calling, regeneration, justification, adoption. In that sense, we have been saved already. So you are saved. So so there's not a sense in which what Jesus did for you wasn't sufficient and you're still needing more to be right before God and hope you get into heaven. You are righteous before God now. And that happened the moment you believe. So there's a sense in which you can't be any more saved than you already are. But there's a tension here because you are being saved. You're being sanctified. And so sanctification is the process in which from the time of our conversion to glorification, we're progressively becoming more and more like Jesus until that day when Jesus gives us new glorified bodies and we will once and for all be like him. All right. Um, so you're, you're in this process of, of sanctification as we speak. So we're going to go to about a thousand Bible verses to talk about uh, what this looks like. And, and how this happens. So here's the tension. When you trust in Jesus, you are instantaneously made righteous before God. We receive, the, as Joe said, the imputed righteousness of Jesus, so we stand holy before God. But we still have what we call remaining sin. Right? So, so positionally, in Christ, you are righteous before God, as, as righteous as you'll ever be. Because Jesus' righteousness is that which God sees. But, but practically and experientially, we don't look very righteous a lot of times, do we? That's my nine-year-old son and my five-year-old son when they're fist-fighting like every second minute at the house. I don't look very righteous when I'm, when I'm dealing with them in those moments. So it, it's, a, it's a mystery that, that in Christ you're righteous, but you're still working out your righteousness. And um, once you become a Christian, sin is still there. But it's no longer primary, right? So sin is still resident in your life as a Christian, but it should no longer be president. Maybe that's helpful to remember. Sin is now the exception, not the rule. So again, this is kind of the big big point here um, before we dig in. Positionally, in Christ, you are perfect in God's eyes. Because the righteousness of Jesus has been given to you. But functionally, and ask our spouse, we're not yet perfect, right? So sanctification is a 
process, not an instantaneous event. Now, there's a real sense in which, which you believe you were sanctified in that moment. It just generally means set apart. But there's another aspect in which you are being sanctified and will be until the day you die. So I just want to start with this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, that gives us hope and encouragement in our sanctification. And here's what Paul says. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. So completely, meaning there's still more sanctification to be done. And then he's going to take us to that final and great day. So may the, the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So this is encouraging. I want to start here. This, this burden of sanctification is not primarily upon our shoulders, brothers. God is the one who will sanctify us. God is the one who elected us. God is the one who calls us. God is the one who regenerates us. God is the one who justifies us. God is the one who adopts us. And God is the one that will sanctify us. And God is the one that will glorify you someday. So this business of sanctification doesn't primarily rest upon our shoulders. God will do it. He is faithful. He will surely do it. But all that being said, uh, there, there seems to be a trend, and, and, and me and some of the guys at our church that have fallen in this zone, um, there seems to be a trend where the Christian's role in sanctification, which is, again, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus over the course of your life, the Christian's role in that, I think, is being de-emphasized to a point that's not helpful or biblical. Okay? So I just want to ask you to ponder this question. It's, it's not a trick question, really. Are you, as a Christian, to live under grace, resting in the finished work of Jesus, not driven by your performance? Or are you to radically pursue and strive for and work for personal holiness and Christ-likeness? Yes. Yes. But, but all of our tendencies, and this is true of churches and Christians across the board, um, we, we're wired to go to one extreme or the other, and we tend to swing this pendulum so that you, you have guys that are so much in the free grace camp, and Jesus paid it all, and is Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and that's all true, but it, it can come to a point where we don't have to do anything at all ever again. And it can lead to slothfulness and, and a lack of pursuit of personal holiness. And so that's one extreme. But the other extreme is we work so hard for Jesus and we're so busy trying to be like him. We live in constant guilt and constant condemnation and we feel like we're never good enough. That also doesn't understand and recognize the power of the gospel. So let's talk about both extremes and then let's go to where I think the Bible will land us with this, this both and. Okay, Living in grace, yes, also striving for holiness. Those two are compatible. They're not enemies of one another. You can work very hard for Jesus and completely be rested in the finality of what Christ has done. So what does that look like? Well, again, most of us, or, or many of us, uh, can be prone towards this works-based, performance-driven, sometimes legalistic approach where we gain all of our value and acceptance primarily from how godly we're living at that particular time. So we assume that God's love for us or God's posture towards us fluctuates based upon how well we're doing spiritually in that season of our life. 
Right, so if we're really walking with Jesus, spending time in the Word, repenting of sin, you know, kind, sweet to our wives, not yelling at our kids, pure before God, not lusty, you know, if we're just really walking with Jesus, we, we tend to think, well, God's, God's really happy with me right now. We, we view God as this happy Father in heaven who's kind of smiling upon us. But then we have a bad week. All right, we haven't been in the Word. We've We've been struggling with our mouth, with our heart, with anger, with lust, whatever. We, we skipped church that day. And we kind of view God all of a sudden as not this tender father, but this kind of angry, scowling stepfather figure. I lived most of my life from a, a 10-year-old to like a 28 or 9-year-old, honestly, as a Christian, thinking God was mad at me. Saved, I'd, I'd believe the gospel, but I, but I viewed God as, as angry. Because I looked in the mirror and I saw a piece of crap, frankly. I knew I struggled with lust and struggled with anger and, and struggled with a million sins. And I was so disappointed in myself. Well, God's standard is clearly higher than mine, so God must think I'm just a big disappointment. And so I felt like I was always in God's doghouse. Any of you guys ever been there? And, and, I, and I still feel that way a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm striving not to, to believe in the finished work of, of Jesus. But sometimes those of us in that camp, we can become very judgmental people towards others. And we tend to view other Christians based upon how godly they're being at that time and whether or not they're being the good Christian person we think they ought to be. So if we have particular convictions, for example, about what a Christian should or shouldn't do, if others don't hold to those exact same convictions, we tend to judge them. All right? Many of us are just innately wired that way. And if that's us, if, if, you, if, you, if you always feel condemned, if you view yourself more as a sinner than you do a saint, if you feel like God's just always shaking His head at you so disappointed, if, if you're kind of there... If you're always striving to earn God's favor and just trying not to tick God off, then you, you just need a, a big dose of the free grace of God. That, that God's acceptance of you is not based upon your performance, but God's acceptance of you is based upon what Jesus has done for you. And that in Christ, God is well pleased with you. That, that you'll never be holy enough, that we'll never be righteous enough no matter how hard we try. But our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in how faithful we are as Christians. Our hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus to us and for us. So if you fail today, brothers, and you will, you need to know that there is no condemnation for you because you are in Jesus Christ. God's not angry at you. Every ounce of anger God had for you and me was poured out on the Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus drank the cup. He cried out to God about in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus drank it all. There's not a drop of anger from God left for any of His children. Discipline, yes. That's not the same thing as wrath and anger and fury. There is none remaining for those who are in Christ because Jesus indeed paid it all. You need not fear the wrath of God. Jesus has been there and done that, brothers, and there's no condemnation remaining. 
So if you're in the performance-based group, always trying to earn God's favor, always just feeling like a failure, like God's always disappointed with you, just enjoy the grace of God. Jesus said, it is finished. Indeed, it is finished. There is nothing left you have to do to make God happy with you. So that's one extreme of performance-based living. But sometimes we overcorrect to that extreme. And this is the extreme that I'm, I'm more concerned about for, for, I think, our church and just some guys in our circles. Some of us have had our eyes open to the beauty of God's grace that we're called to rest in and enjoy the finished work of Jesus. And it's taken a huge load off of us. Right? And that's, that's good news. We, we know that we don't have to earn God's favor. And we're free, indeed, in Jesus. But some of us, myself included, I think have gone somewhere that the Bible doesn't go. And in the name of grace, and I would argue a misunderstanding of grace, we have belittled or dismissed the urgency and the biblical necessity of radically fighting against sin and wholeheartedly pursuing and working towards Don't be afraid of the word work, working towards personal holiness, without which the writer of Hebrews says, we shall not see the Lord. So John Owen said, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Brothers, God is sovereign in our sanctification in the same way that he is sovereign in our election and and new birth and all of that. That is true. But Paul also says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have to be able to hold on to that tension. It's God's work. But, but we don't just sit on the couch and just get zapped into sanctification. That's not how God's doing this. Okay? Sometimes we wrongly come to the conclusion that to rest in Christ means that we don't ever have to do anything again. So if we don't read our Bibles, no big deal. If we don't pray, no big deal. And if we're not Committed to our local church, no big deal. You know, if, if, we're, if, we're, if we're kind of stuck in pornography and, and you know, we just kind of accepted the fact we're, we're just kind of always going to do that. It's kind of the, our thorn, if, if you will. It, it, it's, it's not good, but it's not that big of a deal. After all, Jesus paid it all. And so we're so free that we, we miss so much of what Jesus commands us to do as Lord. Because, brothers, when you become a Christian, Jesus doesn't just become your Savior. He becomes your Lord. Jesus is not fire insurance. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the evidence that we truly believe the gospel isn't just that we prayed a prayer or invited Jesus into our heart. The evidence of truly knowing Jesus is following Jesus and obeying Jesus. So let's just look at a plethora of verses that that show us this, and and we'll try to walk through this biblical tension, okay? Of A, resting in the finished work of Jesus, but also pursuing holiness. Uh, So the writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone, and by implication, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness. Work towards it. You are holy in Christ in a real sense, but go be holy. You are righteous. Go be righteous. Be that which you already are in Christ. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, do the will of God. 
In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. For this is the love of God in 1 John, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So this whole grace and law. Well, but Jameis, we're under grace, we're not under law, so why are we talking about commandments? I don't... I didn't think that I had to obey the commandments to, to have favor with God. Well, we don't obey the commandments to go to heaven when we die, but we do obey the commandments of Jesus, not because we have to, because we get to, and God's changed our heart through generation, and we want to. The evidence that we love Jesus is that we obey Jesus, but it's not a burden because He loves us. He gave His life for us. We, we enjoy obeying Jesus. So if obeying God is this burden where we got to do in order to earn favor, we've missed the point. Obedience is a joy that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus says multiple times in the New Testament that the evidence that we love Him is that we obey Him. He said in John 14, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So if our understanding of, of grace and law... If, if your understanding of grace and law does not have a category for the necessity of obeying the commandments of God, then we've gone somewhere the Bible simply does not go. Let's, let's go to 2 Peter um, chapter 1, and we're going to read several verses here. This is Peter's understanding of, of this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, For this very purpose, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort. So... Grace and effort are not enemies. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, verse 7, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so this is sanctification, increasing, growing in steadfastness, growing in faith, growing in love, not being content with where we are. I want to love better. I want to serve better. I want to be more holy. I want to be more like Jesus. That's a holy ambition. And increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can know Jesus, Peter says, and be unfruitful. You can know the facts of the gospel. We can articulate election and justification and all of these things and, and not be bearing much fruit for Jesus. But Peter says that the, the, the way to bear fruit, as we're going to see, is it's abiding in Jesus. And we're going to go to John 15 in a minute. But we have to make an effort to pursue godliness. Next verse, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Now, last night we talked about election. We're going through Romans at our church right now, so a lot of newer Christians and people I haven't heard this, were like, well, Jameis, I'm so freaked out. Now, now I'm doubting my salvation, because what if I get to heaven and I found out I'm not elect? You can know if you're elect. You can know if you're elect, and the answer is in verse 10 here. So maybe this is helpful for you if you heard last night and you're totally freaking out. This is how you know if you're elect. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You can confirm whether or not you're elect. How? For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
So the implication is if you do not make an effort or practice these qualities, you will fall. And Peter says you can't have assurance of your calling and election apart from these things. So how do you know if you're elect? Practice holiness. That's what Peter said. That's what Peter said. Not, not, not perfectionism. Not, you know, checklist. I did more good than bad today. I must be elect. Obviously, it's rooted in, a, in faith alone, in Christ alone, in the gospel. But the evidence of true faith in the gospel is this innate desire from the Holy Spirit to be like God, to be holy. 1 John chapter 2, we see much of this same language. John says, and this is how we know that we have come to know Him. This is how you know if you're a Christian. He never says, go back to the day you prayed the prayer. He doesn't say, look at the baptism certificate on your wall. This is how you know if you're a Christian. If we keep His commandments. That's how you know if you're saved. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. So John doesn't say... Okay, now that you've believed in the gospel, just sit there and do nothing and just meditate on God's love forever and never get off the couch. That's not what God says. John says, get up and walk like Jesus walked. Do something. Make disciples. Be holy. Love others. Serve others. Obey the commandments of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what's the evidence? We talked about regeneration last night. How do you know if you've been born again? John says, here's how you know you've been born again. Are you practicing righteousness? I keep coming back to the tension not to be laborious with it, but it's, it's, it's there because... Practice righteousness, John says. But you are righteous in Christ. You see this? You are righteous in Christ. As righteous as you'll ever be positionally before God. There is no condemnation for you. You're not earning favor. But, but sanctification is go be that which you are. Live out the Christ-likeness of Christ in you. And then, of course, in James, and a lot of times with our doctrine of justification by faith is people don't know what to do with James. I mean, Luther even said this is the epistle of straw. Because, it, because you see the word works, and people are like, it's faith alone. I don't, I, we don't have a category. Brothers, don't be afraid of the word work. The Holy Spirit inspired that word. And a true belief in the finished work of Jesus enables us and allows us to have a healthy view of working for Jesus without feeling like it's works-based righteousness. So James says, What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warned and filled without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If we don't work for Jesus... That is the evidence we've not experienced the grace of Jesus. The grace of God does not yield complacency. The grace of God does not lead to slothfulness when the Spirit of God is at work. The grace of God produces, yields a passion to know God 
and obey God. That's how you know if you've encountered grace. You change. You're different. You're you're repenting. You're pursuing Jesus. But the danger in me reading all of those verses is that there's probably a few of us who all of a sudden feel this pressure that, okay, man, I'm, I'm not holy enough. I got to go get this done. And, and, and you kind of got God as this angry stepfather again because you're like, I ain't doing all this stuff. So here, here's the danger of, of, of reading all those verses without a holistic view of everything the Bible says about the gospel. The danger is striving to be like Jesus apart from the power and the strength of Jesus. Brothers, some of you are exhausting yourselves because you are trying to live the Christian life apart from Christ. Now, there's no power. So, John 15. When I get really exhausted spiritually, I have to just go back to John 15 and just sit in it. Where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. So remember Peter said a while back ago, you need to see fruit in your life? Well, that's not just by working your tail off and getting it done and having checklists and rules and regulations and legal. That's not what Jesus says. You want to bear fruit? Abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So our living for Jesus starts by abiding in Jesus. It's Jesus' strength in us that produces fruit. If we're striving and working hard for holiness apart from Jesus, it's all in vain. And then he says in verse 6 and 7, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But then look what he says in verse 7. Again, we're, I want you to see this tension. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? And it's not just sitting there and doing nothing ever again and just blanking out forever, resting in the finished work of Jesus. That's not what it means to abide. What does it mean to abide? He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means to abide in the words of Jesus, in the word of God. So you can't abide in Jesus apart from the Bible, which means read the Bible. That's what it means to abide in Jesus. Not I have to read it 45 minutes a day or that doesn't count. It's not this list. But the way to abide in Jesus is to abide in his words. And then the same is true with prayer. Jesus says the way to abide in me is through the spiritual disciplines. Abide discipline. Those are compatible. Sometimes Christians are so afraid of this idea of discipline and effort because it sounds anti-grace, but they all go hand in hand, don't they? So Jesus says here in verse um, 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What, what's asking? Well, that's prayer, isn't it? So abiding in Jesus isn't working hard for Jesus to gain his approval. But abiding in Jesus is meditating on his word, talking to him, immersing yourself in what Jesus has done for you. 
This is what this means. And then he says in verses 8 through 10, and I'm just, just walking right through this. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in the finished work of Jesus. Meditate on the gospel. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus did not keep His Father's commandments to earn the righteousness of His Father. No, Jesus obeyed His Father's commandments to display His love for the Father. So this is all motivated by love. Not, not the need for approval. Not, not the need to appease the wrath of God. Jesus did all of that. We're motivated by love. We've been rescued by such great love in Christ. We're motivated to obey God. And then he says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Well, Jameis, how can we have this light yoke, easy burden that Jesus talks about if we're striving to keep His commandments? How can you be striving and working and showing effort but resting and having a light yoke, easy burden all at the same time? Because Jesus said we can. Jesus says, keep my commandments, make an effort, pursue me, abide in me, and your joy will be full. Let's look at a couple passages now dealing with the, the relationship between our role and God's role in sanctification. Because again, most of us tend to go one extreme or the other where it's either all God and no us or all us and no God. Both are unbiblical. So the, the two best passages that show this, this succinctly is first, of course, Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, not earn God's favor. You've been saved in Christ. Work that out. In other words, become like that which you already are. You are righteous, go be righteous. You are holy in Christ, go pursue holiness. So that's our part. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But verse 13, for it is God who works in you. See, so if you just take Philippians 2.12 and, 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 and delete verse 13, you got, you got legalism, you got fear-based living, you got, I don't, I don't know if I'm falling from grace or if I'm going to get to heaven or not because I looked at porn. Like, you know, you're, you're all over the place. But... For it's God who works in you, both to will and work His good pleasure. So, so who's really doing the work? It's, it's Jesus in us. It's abiding in Jesus, right? And then, of course, in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, you see the same thing. You see God doing all of these things, but He's going to use us. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. You don't make yourself be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's God's power that keeps you, brothers, but He uses our faith. So you must keep believing the gospel. You don't just believe the gospel the day you pray the sinner's prayer. You believe the gospel every day. So your ongoing, continual faith 
is that which God uses in His power to keep you. So you have to hold those things in intention, don't we? Who is involved in our sanctification? Is it us or God? And the answer is yes. But here's the other thing I want us to see. I'm, kind of, I'm trying to hit sanctification from a few different angles here. Uh, God's goal, of course, is to make us more like Jesus. That's why he predestined us in Romans 8 to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's, that's the end goal here. But God will do whatever it takes to get us there. So sanctification is painful. Sanctification involves God's discipline in Hebrews 12. Sanctification involves suffering. So if the goal is conformity to the image of Christ, Jesus suffered to the point of death. It's so fundamental to what it means to be like Jesus is to suffer. This is why Romans 8 says, only those who suffer with him will be glorified with him. So suffering is the pathway to glory. Humiliation always precedes exaltation. There is no uh, crown without a cross. That the path of Jesus is a narrow path. And the way is hard that leads to eternal life, Jesus said in Matthew. So what this means is, uh, and, and those of you that have been walking with Jesus for, for years, you, you know this. And others, that maybe you're a newer Christian in the room, or maybe you're exploring Christianity and you're looking to follow Jesus. You need to know that the way is hard. <laughs> That Jesus said, count the cost. That you're, you're, you're following one who had no place to lay his head. You're following one who was hated, and he says in John, and they will hate you too. So sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is filled with a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. People will die in your life. You will lose a job. People that you've really loved and trusted will wound you and stab you in the back. You'll probably go to church with them. Your faith at some point, I will predict this, will be really weak. So three years ago, I went through essentially a crisis of faith. Went through this deep depression period and had to get away for a little while and... uh, I went through a phase where I don't even know if I believed the gospel. I went through a phase, I didn't know if I believed in God. Now that's, that's kind of problematic if you're a pastor. You know, it's like it's, it's helpful if you believe in God, you know. And then I made the mistake of telling my congregation one day, I was like, I don't even know if I believe. Then I was like, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, but I was just being real with them. I was just really struggling, you know. And so... Brothers, if, and maybe you won't get to that extreme, but, but, but your faith will be weak. Yeah. It, and I, so I, I want you not to go in crisis mode when that happens, but to anticipate struggles and, and suffering and, and trials. And there are days in which you will only be holding on to Jesus by a little thread. You know that old hymn that says, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before? Well, that's not always true. Right? I mean, some days with Jesus, it's, it's hell. I mean, he's, the difference is, though, he's with us. But you won't always feel him. There will be days when you will feel like God has, is a... Read the Psalms. 
Did you know that the Psalms of lament or sadness outnumber Psalms of happiness two to one? In other words, the longest book in the Bible, the guys that wrote it were sad twice as much as they were happy. That's maybe an oversimplification, but... Have you seen Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Sweat drops of blood. Right? So, so he, I guess here's what I'm trying to say. I hope this chart will come up here. This is what your sanctification is not going to look like. Sometimes we think, like, all right, I believe in Jesus, and every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before, and I'm just growing like a weed, and I progressively become more holy every day. And it looks kind of like that till you get to heaven. I don't know that that's true for anybody ever. Instead, your sanctification will look more like this. It really will. Like, there's a general trajectory over the long haul. It's like you look at the stock market, right? Like the guys tell you, don't look at your investments like every week because you'll, you'll kill yourself, right? But, but over, over years, there'll be a 12% return, like historically speaking, right? So you got to look at the big picture. Same is true with sanctification. Look, there's going to be days when you look in the mirror and you look like Satan, you know? And you're like, I don't even know if I'm saved. Like I've had moments in the past year when I truly said, God, show me if I'm not converted, because I don't want to die and go to hell. Because I, I'm, I'm so angry right now. How could I have thought that? And even be a Christian. Have you ever had thoughts so vile? That you truly, how could Jesus even be in me? So brother, your sanctification in Jesus is going to be all over the place. You're going to have spiritual highs, you know. You're going to have seasons where you're just walking with the Lord and just sweet communion with Jesus, and you're sharing the gospel and making disciples, right? And, man, you're going to have other seasons where you can't even crack open the Bible. You're just struggling to even, your prayers don't go past the ceiling, you know. And, and, and you, don't, you don't want to go to church. You don't want to go to community group. You're going to have those, those seasons. So what I'm trying to say is don't, don't be discouraged if you're struggling right now. Don't allow the enemy to accuse you and lead you to despair. As we sang earlier before the throne, look, look to Jesus who made an end to all our sin. Look to him who is there at the right hand of God. Jesus said it is finished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. This is a journey. This is not a marathon. Or this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. We're in this for the long haul. 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you will be able to look back and you will see where you have grown in Jesus. But you're not going to see it week to week, probably. Okay? All right, I want to conclude with this. I want to conclude with, um, Jerry, what time am I supposed to finish? Whenever you want. Okay, you shouldn't have told me that. Um, <laughs> give, me a, give me a time, trust me. Okay, five minutes. Okay, yeah. So I, I want to briefly conclude with the doctrine of perseverance. And this will hopefully kind of, kind of set up where uh, glorification with Scott. But right along with sanctification is this doctrine of 
perseverance. And so I want to give you a brief definition of, of what I'll call perseverance by the saints as it's commonly known. Okay, and here's what it is. Perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. So I just want to briefly address this because I don't know your, your background. Um, maybe you're raised in a religious tradition where you can fall from grace or lose your salvation. This is highly contested, I understand. And so I want to briefly address this for maybe even the one or two brothers in the room who you look at your life and you don't see personal holiness right now and you're thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm out of grace. If I dive in a car wreck tonight, I'm going to hell. I, I want to briefly address the security we have in Jesus. Okay? But... It's, it's, it's not a, a, a once saved, always saved approach in terms of just pray the prayer and you're good to go and live like hell and you're going to heaven no matter what. That's, I was taught that. That's, the Bible says you must persevere. God will keep you. No one will pluck you out of His hand. But you must believe until the end. If you walk away from Jesus... So let's, 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 let's finish this little tension here. Okay? Quickly, Romans 8 from last night, this golden chain of salvation. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, notice the term glorified here is in the past tense. In other words, even though we've not yet been physically glorified, it's as good as done in God's mind. That's incredibly powerful. That when Paul writes that, he writes it as though it's already happened. God is so sure He will keep you until the end. He goes ahead and speaks of your glorification as though it's a done deal. Because in God's mind, it is a done deal. So this is an unbreakable chain in Romans that you cannot be predestined and not ultimately be glorified. Because God always finished what He starts. God is not a risk taker. God will not save you only to lose you. That's why the doctrine of election and predestination is the greatest evidence, I think, and comfort and hope that we will not, in fact, lose salvation. Because if God chose us, God would have to let go of us. Brothers, if we chose God in and of ourselves, what's going to keep us from choosing to not follow God tomorrow? That He called us. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul said, again, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then he says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Brothers, God will take us home. So a true Christian cannot fall away. But it's not because we're so strong that we'll never fall away. It's because of God's power that keeps us. We don't fall away not because we won't let go of Christ, but because Christ will not let go of us. I love what Jesus says in John 6. He says, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus says, if the Father gave you to me, I won't lose you, your mind. And then 
I love what Jesus says in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You're like double secure here. Jesus is like, I got you in my hand. The Father, he's got you too, and ain't nobody going to pluck you out. Brothers, we will not be saved on the final day because of our ability to stay, but because of God's promise to keep us. God can't fail. God cannot or will not start something that he will not finish. But ultimately, people say, well, can I lose my salvation? This is how I always respond to that. Brothers, you, you can't lose your salvation because it's not your salvation to lose. Right? Like remember, God chose us. God called us. We're His possession. Jesus purchased us, Acts 20 said, with His own blood. He obtained us. He sought us. He pursued us. It's not our salvation to lose. We're God's possession for His glory. For God to be unfaithful to keep His promises to us, God would, Peter, or, uh, Paul said, deny Himself. Well, what about the people, Jameis, that seem to be so sincere but then they just walk away from the faith altogether. Did they lose their salvation? Anybody got somebody like that? I mean, I have you know cousins who were apparently madly in love with Jesus for a season and, and, and now are just atheists in a few cases. And it's like, what do we do with that? I mean, did they lose their salvation? One verse to help think through this is 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So again, here's the tension. While God promises to keep us, we must persevere in the faith. Our assurance of salvation, brothers, is not based upon a prayer we prayed or an aisle we walked, or a card we signed, or the Billy Graham crusade we went to 20 years ago. You, if somebody says, are you saved? How do you know? Don't go back to that moment. The way you know you're in Christ is today are you believing the gospel. Are you following Jesus today? Not perfectly, of course, but that is the evidence. So many people in, in the Bible Belt circles like where I grew up, Western Kentucky, Illinois, it's a really dangerous place to live. I'm going to tell you. It is dangerous to live in places like this because everybody thinks they're saved. Because everybody's grandma was a Christian. Right? But brothers, just because everybody around you is saved doesn't mean that you're saved. It's dangerous living in a community where you can't throw a rock without hitting a church with a Jesus sign on it. Amen. How many of us are culturally Christians, but we know not Christ? And you look at our life and there's no evidence of Jesus. Brother, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. <clears throat> Jesus said the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How do you know if you're truly a disciple of Christ? The word abide is the idea of following. Are you following Jesus? 
1 Corinthians, I would remind your brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. How do you know if you're going to be saved? What does it, what does it say? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Amen. Brothers, are you holding fast to the gospel? The gospel of Christ, becoming a Christian, is not a one-time decision that you make. It is a path that we follow by faith until the end. So, once saved, always saved. Theologically, yeah, that, that's true. But I'm, I'm leery of that language. Because where I grew up, once saved, always saved means prayed the prayer and then live like hell as long as you want to. But it's good. Because you can go back in your Bible and it says right here, I was baptized on March the 8th of 1987. I'm, I'm good to go. Because the preacher told me, as long as I just did the ABCs, admit, believe, and confess, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You, you prayed this prayer, you're, you're sealed forever. But Jesus said, no, you, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. So, brothers, I, I just I, I skipped a lot of stuff here at the end, but I, I just want to call all of us to examine ourselves. I mean, we'd, we'd probably be naive to think that, that everyone in this room is in Christ. Is there evidence of Jesus in you? If we were to follow you around with a video camera for, for the past six months, secretly, and then we were to play before this whole room the video of your life for the past six months, and then the room had to vote, is this man, is there evidence to convict this man of being a Christian? How would the vote go? Let's just pray, brothers, and let's ask God to, to reveal. If, if, if any of us are in this room and um, have made a profession of faith in Christ, but maybe we were a false convert, maybe we've not truly been born again, Maybe we see our, our, our need for Jesus over the course of this weekend. You've heard the gospel in every talk. Maybe you're like, wow, I, I've been, I know about Jesus. I don't know Jesus. You understand there's a difference in knowing about God and knowing God. You can have the Ordo Salutis down and be able to quote it in the Latin and all that in Greek, and you can do all that with, and not even know Jesus. So let's just pray. Let's just take a moment or two of silence and just, just, just call out to the Lord. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Father in heaven, I pray that, Lord, if there be a man in this room who is lost and apart from Christ, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit and your great kindness, God, would come and open that, that man's eyes and show him his desperate need for Jesus. Oh God, would you come and grant this new birth we learned about last night. And Lord, would you grant faith and repentance that, that some man even now may repent of his sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and made righteous and new. 
Father, for those of us who, who have trusted in Jesus, Lord, we confess for a week and we confess as that hymn says, we're prone to wonder. Lord, we confess our faith is weak and Lord, we confess that uh, there are days when we don't feel like Christians. But oh God, in those moments, would you just show us Jesus and would you take us back to Christ? Lord, that our hope for seeing heaven is not in our efforts and our hope for seeing heaven is not in our goodness, but it is in what Jesus has done. So God, teach us what this looks like, this mystery of resting in Jesus and being totally secure in Jesus alone, but also with a, a zeal and a passion to grow in holiness, to be holy, God, as you are holy. Lord, make this our holy ambition. But may we pursue you apart from condemnation, apart from guilt, apart from shame. Lord, only your Holy Spirit can help us do all of this at the same time. So Spirit, come and give us this grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.